Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulging cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 New Year's Eve parties in San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. CommonwealthClub.org Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, I'm Adam Hirschfelder, Director of Marine Programming for the Commonwealth Club. And welcome to tonight's Marin Conversation programs from the Marin Center in San Rafael, California. Tonight's program is sponsored by the Marin Community Foundation and Relevant Wealth Advisors. Tonight's guest, Chris Taylor, author, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. Brian Young, writer and contributor to StarWars.com and a range of Star Wars podcasts. And our moderator, Zaki Hassan, a film critic in the Bay Area for over 20 years. Let's listen in. Uh, thank, thank you. First of all, I want to welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us here at this Commonwealth Club event here at the Showcase Theater in San Marin. My name is Zaki Hassan. I am a film critic with the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm also a communication and media professor at San Jose State University, and I am a lifelong Star Wars fan, so I feel like I am among my people here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this is super exciting for me to just be here, not only chatting with you, but to, to chat with uh, these great folks here. We are here with Chris Taylor. He is deputy editor at Mashable. He has contributed to Time Magazine. He is also author of the fantastic book, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. I was not exaggerating. I was listening to the audiobook while I was driving in, and that's one of multiple times I've listened to it. So, Chris, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, and Brian Young is here. He is a contributor to StarWars.com. He's also co-host of Full of Sith, yes. uh, a podcast with the greatest name of all podcasts. I'll take uh, that. <laughs> so, so thank you, uh, folks, both of you, for joining us to have this conversation as we mark the completion of the Skywalker saga. Just to get things started, you know, we'll start at the micro and work our way out to the macro. Star mm-hmm. Wars means many things to many different people. So uh, first, Chris, and then Brian, uh, what does Star Wars mean to you? So my, my Star Wars story goes all the way back to my childhood in the UK. You can probably tell I'm not from around here. Um, but uh, growing up in England, my, my experience of Star Wars, it's sort of, I, I, I came uh, pre-aware of the fact that Star Wars is not just a movie franchise, because my first experience of the story was on the back of a cereal packet that we had uh, in Britain growing up, so a, sh- a cereal called Shreddies. Uh, it's not about rock guitar, but about, yeah, Shreddy, <laughs> yes, Shreddies fan in the audience. Um, but that was my first experience of the story. You got, you got a picture of the, the Tantor Four. Uh, that was your sort of playset, and you rub these letter set figures onto it, and there was a gold guy, and there was a woman dressed in white, and I was like, okay, this looks like fun. Um, and you know, and then the series kept, uh, the series of cereal box covers kept coming with different characters. And then I read the comic book, and then I read the novel, and then many years after that, I saw the movie, right? So <laughs> I was already familiar with uh, a lot of the dialogue from the comic book. In fact, a lot of the dialogue they cut from the movie was in the comic book. Um, and, and then, you know, by then Empire Strikes Back came out, Re- Return of the Journey was on the way. So I was in just at the right time to be an original trilogy fan. Um, but I got very interested in it over the years when I went to 
uh, work for Time magazine in New York in uh, the late 90s. Um, we uh, we did a Phantom Menace cover. We had exclusive images on the cover. Um, and I, that was my first time working with Lucasfilm. That was fun because we'd acquired a, uh, a copy of the script of Phantom Menace. Oh, wow. So I, I wrote my very first Star Wars story was about the fact that there was a character called Newt Gunray who was not based on anyone who was in Congress at the time. <laughs> but he was an evil member of the Trade Federation. Uh, Just a coincidence. Looking to lower everyone's taxes. Um, so that was a little weird. Um, and then, <laughs> then I started working for Mashable in 2011. We didn't have an entertainment section. I kind of started it by writing Star Wars stories. Um, and, and then I happened to be in the right place at the right time with a book agent and uh, interested publishers when Lucasfilm was sold to Disney. Um, that is how I wrote the book. It was pitched as the, the first complete history of, of Star Wars as, as an independent franchise, of Lucasfilm as an independent company. Uh, came along at just the right time, and it's um, taken me to a lot of places. It's out there in 11, 12 countries now, I think, and... Um, it's it's been pretty wild, and I'm still not bored of talking about Star Wars. Well, and we're grateful for that. It's brought you here. So, uh, Brian, how about you? Uh, I'm a little younger than Chris, and so my like Star Wars was already in the world when I came to it. Uh, I was almost three years old when Return of the Jedi came out, and that's honestly my first memory is getting dragged to the theater to see Return of the Jedi. I remember this idea that like movies were in drive-ins like i feel like i knew about drive-ins enough to know that when we were going to a theater where you actually walked in and sat down at seats it was something special mm. and that was return of the jedi and uh it imprinted on my brain from that moment and really just sort of took over my life and over the years it meant something to me on different levels at first it was entertainment uh through my childhood i lived in a uh an abusive household mm-hmm. And Star Wars was actually something that I used not not only as an escape, but it actually offered a lot of like hope. There was I just wrote about this. I write um, for Sci-Fi Channel's website, and I just wrote a piece about why one of the most resonant scenes in the trilogy actually is Luke unmasking Vader. And to me, as a kid dealing with uh, a father that that was not uh, I, I won't say he was as bad as Darth Vader, but to a kid. <laughs> To a kid, it felt like that. that and to see the hope and the, the inherent empathy that Luke Skywalker had to be able to take his father's mask off and see that there was something that had caring and uh, emotion there behind it under the mask was something that resonated with me a lot. Mm. And um, I didn't do anything with it professionally until I was working in documentary film and started writing for Huffington Post and uh, started reviewing episodes of The Clone Wars as that started coming out. So I was just a fan through the uh, prequel trilogy, and what a fan, because um, I really love those movies. And uh, so that was, that was my introduction. As Clone Wars started coming out and reviewing every episode and just kind of going on the, the press tour there brought me into different outlets writing about Star Wars and... Uh, eventually, I think I got a, a reputation of being the person who you would talk to about the prequels, and I think that's how Chris found me to interview me for his book. I, I so I, I came across you as as a person to speak for the prequels, so I, I needed someone to do that. 
But since then, I've, I've discovered that you are, you are just the, possibly the smartest man on the planet where Star Wars is concerned. <laughs> I, I you know everything. Know. I've seen this man on a Star Wars cruise. You know, Disney does <laughs> Star Wars cruises now. You know what I'm going to say. He, he won the trivia contest, like, hands down. There was no one who could come close. Like, you know every obscure character. Uh, it's, it's very impressive. Is it, though? Is that, I mean, is that a vital... <laughs> yes. Don't hide your light in a bushel. And Lucasfilm knows it. This man has done things for Lucasfilm that you people wouldn't believe. I, maybe. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> no. So, I'm talking so about that. I, I think, I think uh, where, where you left the, that last question, I think, is, is really a uh, helpful way of framing the, the macro, which is, you know, we just celebrated 40 years of this franchise, and, uh, you know... Movie series don't tend to last this long. It's it's a very very short list. It's very short to have a series. It's it's a very short list to have a series that is embraced by people from across the age spectrum. So so maybe now you can take the broader question: mm. Why why Star Wars? Chris, I think it's the first global myth. Hmm. Uh, I think that there is a real need for myth in this culture. Um, you know. Uh, George Lucas may have overplayed slightly his Joseph Campbell inspiration, but that's not to say that Campbell wasn't absolutely right about the monomyth, hmm. right? About this one overarching story, the hero's journey, uh, and how it's laid out and the story beats that you hit along the way. And Star Wars follows that to a T, you know, as it, as it goes around, you know, there's the confrontation with the father, you know, uh, it's very, very Campbell-like. And it just it resonated with everyone. It was uh, available to everyone. It was uh, it was only PG. It was only the original movie was only designated PG because one kid at the original screening uh, cried when Vader lift up lifts up Captain Dante's, <laughs> and they they used that to argue. No, it's a PG. No, really, you know, to get the teenagers <laughs> to go. Because you don't want the what's what's below PG G. 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 yeah that's that's kiss of death kiss of death for a movie right so uh, so you know they just managed to tweak the original movie so that it managed to be PG but it it was really G it was really universal it was really accessible to all and it still is and uh, even though it contained two genocides in the film uh, somehow managed to be what George wanted which was a fairy story you know specifically aimed at 12-year-olds and everyone's inner 12-year-old. Um, and, it, and it really pulled it off. And that sort of stuff is universal. And we didn't have it in the culture. Yeah. And now it's everywhere. I think one of the things that, that Star Wars has done really well, too, is pushing technology forward. I think the mythology matched with the aesthetic of the technology is something that, that really captured imaginations, right? When the first movies came out, there were behind-the-scenes documentaries running on television about how the movies were made, and that was something that uh, seemed special. I mean, you can still... I mean, in the 90s, they re-released a VHS tape of the original 77 making of Star Wars, but you had to buy you know, how many boxes of corn pops to get it. And there, there I was <laughs> cereal doing again. it. Yeah, no, yeah. I was buying all the cereal to, to find <laughs> out how the movie worked. And, and I think, um, I mean, you, you work uh, interviewing people in, in film and television, and uh, you talk to people and of a certain age, almost universally, people say it was Star Wars that inspired me to go into a creative field of, uh, of work. Yeah. Um, 
and it's something you hear over and over and over again. So I think it's inspiring on a number of different levels for people who are creative. The hero's journey that they want to go on is to have the courage to go and, and live that creative life for others. Um, it, it helps them get through things like it did with me. I mean, for me, it, it did a number of things, but, um, but that, that technical proficiency that you're talking about, I mean, that, that sense of perfectionism, that is something that we shouldn't let fly. I don't know if there's anyone from Lucasfilm in the audience. Anyone from Nobody? Lucasfilm yeah. in the audience? <laughs> um, Lucasfilm's a wonderful company. No, but it's, it was a perfectionist uh, culture, right, that, that, that George created. And he himself, I mean, he's still to this day embarrassed by the original film, right, because mm-hmm. it didn't live up to what he wanted, what he saw in his head. And it, clearly because changes are still dropping on that original yes. film as of like two McClunky. weeks ago. <laughs> McClunky, oh my goodness. But yeah, no, but that's the kind of obsessive perfectionist that we had. And we hadn't had that in, certainly not in like anything approaching a f- space fantasy. The closest we had was, was 2001. Right. With uh, Kubrick's level of perfectionism. Hmm. Right. So that was the, that was the sphere that he was thinking himself in. And at every stage, you know, the, the introduction of CGI, uh, computer graphics, even in the original film, which people yeah. don't realize that illustration, the, uh, computer graphics of the Death the Star. Death Star yeah. Uh, actually, you know, one of the first shots done on a computer. Um, so, you know, always out ahead of the game, trying to get as far as they could in animation, uh, trying to change theaters so they'd all show digital movies, you know. So it's been on the cutting edge all along. I think people respond to that sense of taking it really seriously, which not a lot of people have done. And, uh, an interesting story, I interviewed... Um Rob Coleman, who's the animation director on the prequels, and he was saying that the story they told around uh, ILM at the time was that uh, George Lucas sort of just people wanted to produce exactly what he expected because he was this creative genius because of that. And one of the stories they told to the people at ILM was when they were building Skywalker Ranch, he walked in and he was sort of looking around and go, oh, I thought... I thought that door was going to be over there. And he leaves and comes back, <laughs> comes back a few weeks later, and they've rebuilt the room so the door is over there. And he said, why Why'd you move the door? And they're like, well, you said you thought you want." He's like, no, I just said I just was expecting it. They didn't need to move or anything. And that was just sort of the, the creativity and the perfectionism that he inspired around him. Well, he gave the word from on high, and, yeah. you know. It was up to the, the the peasants to make sure that they, you know. Even though the way I imagine it is, he just sort of walked in muttering to himself, and the worker <laughs> overheard him. Yeah, yeah. Got got to keep the boss happy. Yeah. Well, so so that's that's the technical, uh, you know, the the very long reach of the technical mm-hmm. side. But obviously, there's the there's the thematic element, and uh, you mentioned Joseph Campbell. But even even above and beyond that, I mean, Lucas. Uh, who has you know Bay Area roots? I mean, I mean, not too far from here, you know. And and I think I think uh, his his politics are laced throughout the films. Absolutely, uh, very heavily in the prequel films, mm-hmm. but certainly throughout. And I was wondering if both of you guys could talk about the political influences on them. Well, let, let's take it chronologically, right? So George Lucas, um, Bay Area resident, born in Modesto, um, goes to LA film school after a, a car crash that changes his life, makes him more serious, totally focused. Uh, goes, goes to USC film school, becomes a very, very serious filmmaker of short films to the point where on his third short film, his name is just Lucas. Right. Like the, he's, dropped, he's dropped the George. <laughs> like know, Madonna. Yeah. Yes, exactly. He's just Lucas. And, um, and then, you know, so he's, he's thinking a lot about Vietnam, as everyone was hmm. in the 60s. 
his first film, THX 1138, is a very political film. It's more of a sort of a scream of rage at the plastic Los Angeles culture that was all about him, right? You know, people popping pills, people living in this very anodyne society, uh, you know, and he just sort of spun that forward, right? But it was science fiction, hard science fiction as a sort of a response to the present moment. So that was political. American Graffiti, his second film, surprisingly political because it was... Um, it was America in 1962, and that choice of year was very deliberate. Mm. It was the last year before America was torn apart by Kennedy and civil rights in Vietnam. It was like, look at what we lost, right? Um, but Vietnam, I mean, American Graffiti was made in 73. Vietnam was very much in the culture, 72, 73. Hmm. It's what everyone was talking about. And he was going to direct Apocalypse Now, right? Uh, which he and John Milius had been working on for a long time. Uh, until Francis Ford Coppola took it away from him, made him decide in 1975, it's Apocalypse Now or Star Wars, right? You have to, I'm off to the Philippines. You, are you coming? You know, <laughs> wow. uh, probably a good thing for George that he didn't. Um, but that was, that was where his mind was. He wanted to make the first real Vietnam picture. And, um, and that comes through in Star Wars as well. It was very much a response to the present political crisis uh, the Emperor was very much based on Richard Nixon. There's a reason why where you see him for the first time on the second Death Star, his office is oval. Huh. Right? <laughs> Lucas was very careful to point that out. Um, and it was, you know, all of this stuff is behind the scenes. But the inspiration for the Empire was uh, America and Vietnam, the, the technological might. The, uh, the AT-AT is actually based on a concept vehicle that GE did. Um, for for Vietnam, that was you know supposed to stomp through jungles, right? Um, and the the rebels slash the Ewoks, like eventually it sort of it went through many iterations. Eventually became the Ewoks were very representative of the Viet Cong, right? This primitive uh, tribe that nevertheless managed to defeat a technological empire. So that was very political. That was his intention. It kind of got twisted. Uh, in the 80s when, you know, Reagan, the names, Star Reagan, Wars and Reagan. Actually, uh, Ted Kennedy came up with the, the, the slur, like using Star Wars as a slur to defy it, to describe the SDI initiative. And Reagan was like, great. <laughs> That's a great name for <laughs> Everybody it. Everybody loves take that. Star Wars. Yeah, everyone loves Star Wars. And, you know, there's a period where Ted Kennedy is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I meant it's like the Lone Ranger. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't, don't use Star Wars if you're turning to denigrate something. Um, so, but that was the original intention. Even though America was like, yeah, Star Wars, you know, it's it, waving the flag, it's, we're proud, we're back, it's post Vietnam stuff. No, it was supposed to try to warn us, uh, in a lot of ways. But that, that got lost in the telling. Uh, it was because ultimately it was a fairy tale, right? How much can you bring the politics to the fore in that? Uh, it comes a lot more to the fore in the prequels, which is about how democracy dies. It is a very scary set of movies to watch now. It, very, it, it is very much so. I think yeah. uh, it's really interesting. You look at the the Star Wars prequels they were being made, or at least Phantom Menace was being made in the late 90s, the last years of the Clinton administration. You have that uh, Republican Congress, right? You've got Newt Gunray, the leader of the Trade Federation. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, Lot Dodd, who uh, Newt Gunray was named after Newt Gingrich. Yep. And Lot Dodd was named after a mix of Trent Lott and Chris Dodd. Yep. And... Uh, 
Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, but I think it's really terrifying, right? What George Lucas was trying to say in the 90s that it seems like we all talk about now, but corporate influence and money and politics was uh, a danger that he was thinking about back then. And that's why it's so terrifying when you watch Phantom Menace and see that not only do the Trade Federation have such a uh, an influence in the Senate, but they actually have Senate representation. Mm-hmm. Um, Lot Dodd is the senator from the Trade Federation. And that's sort of where George Lucas thought we were heading. And it was this, uh, how do you take bureaucracy and how do you take the uh just the the wheels of government and turn them into ways to do things that the the framers of those government governments never intended yep. and it's that influence of money and and power in politics hmm. uh that attract the sith naturally with palpatine and then you have you know your useful idiots the people mm-hmm. who will vote for it even though they don't they're not quite sure what they're voting for um i think jar jar binks gets a bad rap uh, but he's immensely important. <laughs> to put it mildly, it, it, it's it's a, it's it's undeserved as well. And if we yeah. want to get into Jar Jar, we can get into Jar Jar. But um, I'm a big fan of Jar Jar personally. Yeah, you got to reveal your tie. Oh at yeah, this point. okay. Yeah. So oh, you got it. So, yeah. I've got Jar Jar on my tie. Hey. Um, he backs it up. There we go. <laughs> But uh, the the idea that that Jar Jar, who's someone who's so pure intentioned, some someone who is so uh, noble and wants to do the right thing, can be so easily manipulated into handing the keys of that power to someone who is so obviously evil, mm. uh, or not so obviously evil, is something that uh, George Lucas was trying to warn us about. And there's moments, uh, th- there's moments in those films that echo moments that were happening cont- uh, in the contemporary time, right? That that moment where Anakin in Revenge of the Sith says, you know, you're either with me or you're my enemy was an echo of, of something George W. Bush had right. said uh, during his tenure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Attack of the Clones has a terrorist attack, you know, and it came out in 2002. I mean, it was... It- it was and that was... Out. It was interesting. There was rumors at the time that they'd filmed this... Uh, uh, you know, these, these terrorist attacks and, and Sam Wessel's ship hitting the building. There were rumors that they changed it because of 9-11 because it was mm. still in, uh, in progress much, yeah. then. Uh, I don't necessarily think that those rumors, uh, yeah, they, they wore out, but <laughs> I don't think they change changed it because it got too close to really? yeah. reality. But, it but was, yeah, I mean, he, he was a big student of, of history and like he, he always wanted to answer this question of why do democracies and republics die? Why, why do the people just give their power away? And that's what, the prequels it was supposed to show. It's what Revenge of the Sith shows, uh, especially. And uh, it's it's a warning we'd, we'd probably do well to heed. And then the sequel yeah. trilogy, there's a little bit of politics in that as well. We can get onto that discussion. Well, and, and just just to, to piggyback off what you said about the prequels, mm-hmm. I mean, there I, I just watched the prequels, re- as I'm sure many people are doing their rewatches, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the context in which you view it, the current historical context gives it an entirely different prism, but Natalie Portman has that line. This is how liberty dies with thunderous applause, and it is truly chilling. Yep. It is truly chilling. It was chilling back then. It feels even more chilling now. Yeah, then we, we didn't turn. have anything to attach it to necessarily. I mean, you know, we, we didn't like... Now you watch. can turn on the television and yeah. watch rallies where, where there's this thunderous applause watching Liberty Die. Mm. Well, so, so, I mean, you talk about the sequels, and I think that's worth talking about the fact that the, the, the sequel films exist in a post-George Lucas era. So this is a corporate property that is loaded with political 
uh, intent and iconography. Uh, how, how, how have the sequel films balanced that? Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that there is, you know, there's a lot of George's original story still in there. You know, he had, he had episode seven, I believe, was going to be the, the young apprentice finding old master Skywalker and, and him not wanting to fight and, you know, had, trying to pull him out of that. So it's, it's a remix of a lot of the, the Lucas elements without the midichlorian stuff that he wanted to get into, the, the biological stuff. Um, but also, yeah, I, I, I sort of like to, uh, I was talking to Chris Terrio, who's the co-writer of Rise of Skywalker, uh, earlier, and I said, you know, it's kind of like that game, uh, The Exquisite Corpse. I don't know if you've ever played that, but it's a game where you, you write the first paragraph of a story, you fold the piece of paper over, someone else writes the next paragraph, <laughs> you fold that over, eventually you've got this sort of story, you know, that you've constructed together without entirely knowing what you were doing. That sort of seems to be what's happening with, with the sequel trilogy. A little bit. There's more, little more collaboration than they're often given credit for. But, uh, you know, episode seven was very much Abrams and Kasdan. Uh, episode eight was very much Ryan Johnson. But, you know, in collaboration with what Abrams had set up, uh, it's not like he just took everything and trashed it, as some some so-called fans might tell you. Hmm. Um, and then uh, episode nine is is Abrams and uh, and Chris Terrio, you know, coming back again uh, to to wrap everything up, fully aware that they are wrapping up a nine-episode story. So there there should be elements from all previous eight movies in the ninth. As far as the politics of them go, I think they have a very strong message, especially The Last Jedi. Um, Not necessarily the obvious ones that you sort of hear some of those circles of fans complaining about, but I think one of the strongest messages in The Last Jedi is about needing to pick a side Mm. and how apathy actually supports and props up the inherently evil institutions. Mm. Um, And I think that, that... Finn is a really great example of that, of needing to pick that side and needing to understand that he can't stay in the middle. There is no middle because yeah. because the, the fight between the two sides is going to consume all of them. And actually brings it around full circle to something George would say about uh, Vietnam and about America post-Vietnam in the early 70s, to not make a choice is to make a choice. Yeah. Hmm. it's You know, the you talk about how... Uh, Star Wars is loaded with, with Vietnam commentary, and I'm I'm uh, drawn to the fact that ten years, less than ten years earlier, you had Planet of the Apes, mm. which was the previous banner sci-fi franchise, which was itself a very uh, obvious Vietnam critique. And you have these two films that are, you know, both quite revered today, but they approach their commentary in entirely different ways. Mm. And uh, I think that spe- speaks to to Lucas's farsightedness, where you know, we still talk about the film and the commentary doesn't, we, it doesn't have to be as apparent, but sure. it's clearly there. Yeah, Planet of the Apes released the same day as 2001. That's right, it's exactly. One of the most important days in, in sci-fi in, history. In sci-fi history and in Luke's life, you know. The right. Inspiration, the <laughs> it's interesting, you, 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 um, you bring up Planet of the Apes, though, and going back to your early question about why Star Wars, I think looking at Planet of the Apes and Star Wars uh, together in this way is actually very instructive in that Planet of the Apes sort of works for an audience. Hmm. And the Star Wars movies, we were, we were talking about this backstage, like it hits kids differently than it hits adolescents and it hits hmm. adults differently than it hits them. And where it hits you during your life, 
changes your perspective of it as you age through the stories and you get to peel back other layers. And I'm not sure there are fan clubs of people peeling back the layers of the original Planet of the Apes mm. film. Yeah, it's true. And it's also a sort of a nice... Um, so it reminds me of the story of what Allen Ginsberg, the beat poet, said when he first saw the words a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away come up <laughs> on the screen in 1977. And he turns to his companion in the audience, who I spoke to, uh, for the book, and he says, uh, thank goodness, I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> it's it's all back, right, it's, if there's any analogy, it's going to be very well disguised. The, the Statue of Liberty is not going to show up at the end, right? Yeah. We're not going to, like this all, the thing with the Empire, it's not us, right? It's well, and, far and away. Maybe you can unpack that, mm-hmm. Lucas's decision to set this a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I mean, yeah, which is interesting because the, the, the first draft, it was supposed to be the 33rd century. Uh, but he very quickly decided, no, this is a fantasy. It's not, it's not in the future. It's a long time ago. Um, and he, and that, that was different to the things that he was inspired by. It was different to Flash Gordon, which is very much set now, you know, but escapes very quickly to a fantasy situation. Flash Gordon, by the way, number one influence for George above Vietnam, above everything. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, Flash Gordon was, you know, very quickly a space fantasy. But it also kind of took the hero from Earth and, and dropped him in a fish out of water setting. Um, but George really wanted to do something a little bit more like Lord of the Rings, which is very popular at the time, you know, a bit more fantasy-esque. I think it had a lot um, to do with the the Campbell influence too, where all yeah. of these things were these ancient stories, and that goes back to influence uh, in previous movies too, where he wanted things to feel like artifacts. With THX, uh, listening to he and Walter Murch talk about it, they wanted it to feel like uh, an artifact from the future, right? But Star Wars was this artifact of of a story and mythology from the past, and I think I, I, I think right. I would I would bet that and, and THX kind of bet. soured him on this idea of you know let's make something that is tangible and connected to Earth and and connected to us and our future, right? Because the the reaction to that was so negative hmm. that Lucas's response was, oh, I guess I'm not doing anything like that again. Yeah. So, you know, we've got to couch it a little bit more. Well, and I, I mean, if if you'll permit me to mix sci-fi metaphors, I mean, it's essentially saying all of this has happened before and it will happen again. It's the mm. you know, it's uh, that's that's uh, from Battlestar. Well, yeah, but but it's it's so interesting to see those cycles play out through Star Wars. Through um, you know, I know I know there were there were very vocal complaints from people saying, "Oh, The Force Awakens is too much like A New Hope." But when I hear that complaint, what I hear is I didn't actually pay attention to the movies. Um, <laughs> because when you look like that's a, that's a feature, not a bug, right? In the first chapter of a Skywalker saga movie, there's a whiz kid mechanic strong in the force found on a desert planet by a mentor who pulls them off the planet and dies at the hand of a red lightsaber, right? It happens in all of them. They all, it's like poetry. It, 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 yeah, exactly. It's the, the Lucas quote. It's like poetry. It rhymes. They each, you know, uh, culminate with. Uh, a pilot blowing up a, an increasingly larger sized ball. Right. Um, 
you know, well, it, it's the Trade Federation ship in, <laughs> yep. in Phantom Menace, and then it gets bigger to the Death Star and A New Hope, and then we've got Starkiller Base in, in Force Awakens. It's something that just, it scales up all of these things. We haven't learned these lessons, and that's what I love so much about uh, the, the Last Jedi, is Yoda finally comes to Luke and said, like, listen, wait, you have to learn from your failures. You have to learn from your mistakes. And that's something that the galaxy hadn't done from the time of Phantom Menace through to the time of the Galactic Empire and now again in the era of the First Order. We haven't learned our mistakes. We keep letting it happen over yeah. and over and over again. Well, and, and specifically, the, the quote, I just love it, the best teacher failure is. Yeah. I mean, that's that's so profound. You know, you, uh, you can be uh, 10 or 40 you know i think it still works um now now we are essentially in the 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 third generation of of star wars and i think i i wanted to take a moment to talk about how opinions about the prequel films which were uh yeah they were fairly polarizing back then now it's like the golden age because that was pre-internet but i mean people were right. fairly polarized back then how uh, those opinions have changed and maybe what you attribute that to yeah, now all of a sudden the, the people who might have been saying 10 years ago that, you know, George has lost it and he doesn't understand yes. and, he, you know, he doesn't know what real Star Wars is, even though he created the thing. Um, <laughs> you know, that, all back, of a sudden they, back, they're like, how closely are we hearing to George's vision, right? Like suddenly that's the important thing. So it's, it's a very odd uh, thing to process. Yeah, of course, people are looking at it through the through the lens of Disney as well, right? right? Disney is the... It's the big evil corporation that came along and snatched up this franchise. Which is so bizarre to me it because it's still... I mean, Lucasfilm is so independent of Disney and they hire filmmakers to create art and tell stories that are meaningful to them. I mean, uh, I can't imagine Last Jedi going through corporate bureaucracy. Yeah, I was... So I went on a book point. tour with uh, Timothy Zahn, who's sort of a big name in, in Star Wars book world. We went to Brazil and we were both... Selling books, and everywhere they they went, they they wanted him to explain the the Disney Lucasfilm deal. So he finally just came up with this metaphor, which is uh, Disney. You know, on, on Monday morning they back up a dump truck full of cash and pile it into <laughs> Lucasfilm. Uh, on Friday they come back with two dump trucks <laughs> to collect the cash and then go away, right? And it's it's weird because Disney also owns Pixar, they also own Marvel. And you don't see those things described as Disney properties, right? For some reason, a Pixar mm. movie is still a Pixar movie. A uh, Marvel movie is very much a Marvel movie. Uh, but a Lucasfilm movie, for some reason, is a Disney film. And I don't know why. Like, is it just the smaller fish? The fact yeah, I don't know. sold for less money? I've, I have, still haven't figured it out. But um, to the original question, though, I think part of it is, is that age thing, yeah. right? Uh, there's this... Uh, I was going through this as someone who had sort of escaped the jaded cynicism of the group of narrow, uh, the narrow generational band that tried to reject the prequels initially, watching people who their rejection was based solely on their nostalgia for the original films. And I think part of it, too, was the fact that Star Wars over those those 16 years were, you know, between Return of the Jedi and between Phantom Menace part of Star Wars and we didn't realize it had become familiarity. Hmm. We'd watch them over and mm -hmm. over and over again and they were on every time they were on TV, every time they released a new box set on VHS, we went out, we watched them. We could we could recite every line by heart. And then all of a sudden we sat down to see a new movie 
and we didn't know what was going to come out of the mouth of the characters right then. Mm. And we didn't understand how to process that. And he was going for something very diff- different yeah. with the prequels. He well, didn't want to make the same film. It's interesting, I think, that it, you can look and you can track what they were doing generationally with the acting styles, mm-hmm. where uh, A New Hope through Return of the Jedi were very contemporary for that 70s, 80s acting style. The prequels were 30 years before, and so he went back to that late 40s acting style huh. the 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 actors that you know you could see Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart stepping into any of those roles and delivering that dialogue the same way they would in uh in those films and advancing that acting style with the sequel trilogy you get the same thing where it's very contemporary to now uh through those generations and it's a really interesting choice and that I was right. very on board for as someone who was even as a kid really interested in in films of that age that never rubbed me the wrong way yeah the stormtroopers now look like they came out of the apple store <laughs> right? it's very yeah intentional design didn't they yeah <laughs> I, I mean I say by the way that I'm not as much of a fan of the prequels as Brian is but he is like every single problem that I had with the prequels Brian was able to answer and that is <laughs> Seriously, stick around, talk to this guy about the prequels. If you have any issues with them, uh, line up. He will have a response for it. I think you like them better now that you've known me. Sure. <laughs> yeah, let's say that. I, I'm not a fan of the way that they were acted, but I think I appreciate the story more. I mean, I, you know, certainly for me, I'm, I'm hot and cold on the prequels, but I like them because my kids like them. And, mm. and you know, I think that's... When you when you look at the the sort of visceral reaction people had, I think what it came down to was, hey, this new thing doesn't make me feel like I did when I saw that old thing without realizing, like, well, you were seven or eight, yeah. or you know, you were. I mean, it was a different mental framework. My, my son is um, my oldest son's seventeen, and he talks about Revenge of the Sith the way we talk about The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. yeah. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. I mean, that that in, in and of itself is something that this franchise offers, which is so distinct. And, you know, uh, we're talking about Marvel. It's like, it's going to happen with Marvel because those films are going to last long enough that you're going to have the, the people, oh, you know, Avengers Endgame, that was the best. You know, we're, we're gonna, it's going to happen. Longevity brings that. But, yeah. but I think, uh, you know, it's funny. I tweeted this earlier today. I said there's an ancient Arabic proverb. No, uh, no one hates Star Wars more than Star Wars fans. Yes. <laughs> Very much Which, so. I, you know, I, the the amount of rage that people have for this thing that they supposedly love, it's like, find a new hobby. I, <laughs> and George has tried to say that several times. He tries to say, we're, we're not like, you know, Star Trek fans, right? We, we're, we're the ones who leave Tatooine. We leave our aunt and uncle's uh, right. domicile, and we, we go and have adventures in the galaxy. Um, so well, in Luke's case, his aunt and uncle there. were mur- murdered brutally, so that was sort of an inducement to leave. Kind of kicked him out the door yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, but I mean that that itself the 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 I mean there's there's a seedy underside of just the fan reaction. But I think uh, you know we're talking about the sequel films. Obviously, the Last Jedi has been very polarizing, and I was wondering if you guys could tackle uh, where you think that's coming from. 
I don't think it's as polarizing as it appears yeah. online. I think uh, Washington Post did a study that they found that uh, they studied all of the accounts in the months after the release of The Last Jedi that were attacking Ryan Johnson, and a full 50% of them had been identified as literally Russian troll bots. <laughs> right. That was, Seriously. It's wow. true. I don't think it was the Post. It was, there, there was a study done that yeah. showed a surprising amount of Russian bot activity around The Last Jedi because it was a cultural wedge, right? You could drive a wedge in that point. Um, which is not to say that it was the Russians who were responsible for all the reaction. No. But <laughs> if you look at this, the cinema score... Yeah, uh, was I think a, a it was an A plus. It was ninety eight. An, an A plus. Yeah, you know, uh, audiences coming out of the film where they ask you your reaction to the film. Uh, it was in the ninety ninety five percent range of satisfied with the film, very satisfied with the film. Uh, and then all of a sudden, after it came out, like the, the critical reaction was mostly positive. Yeah. All of a sudden, we get fans upset. I think there's a lot of grief in that. You know. Spoiler alert, Luke dies. I don't know if anyone's not seen The Last Jedi in here, but Star Wars is safe for spoilers. Like, Vader's Luke's dad. Um, <laughs> like, you couldn't talk about that Harry Potter in the same way, could you? Right. Yeah. Uh, tell you what happened to Dumbledore. But no, it's, um, <laughs> it, was hard to, it was hard for me to process. I really loved the film, and it was hard. It is still hard to watch that film. Luke yeah. dies. Our heroes fail. Um, you know, you have to unpack a lot of it, I think, before you get down to the good feeling that comes from it. I think it was the most mature of the Star Wars movies, yeah. well, even more so than Empire. I think that there's a maturity to it where um, being a father helped me really kind of chew on that. Like, I don't think there's a heartbreaking, a more heartbreaking line in that in that movie than uh, we are what they grow beyond. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and that was really, really sort of hard to, to cope with. And and. I think that was part of it. I think it was more challenging than, than some audiences were expecting. And I think that there is a contingent of fans who don't respond well to uh, what they view as identity politics. Yeah. Um, hmm. I, I don't think they're correct. I think that they're, I think that they need to work on themselves a lot more and then maybe revisit the movie and they'll, they'll probably enjoy it more. But I think the film uh, the film challenges them in ways that Star Wars maybe hadn't in the past. Yeah. And I think it's only a very small sliver of a very small sliver of fandom. You don't get to be the ninth highest grossing film of all time on the backs of those super fans. Yep. And you don't get to be that if, if everyone was so drastically disappointed. Yeah, it's about what the mainstream audience thinks of it. Yeah. They seem to like it. I, I have to remind Star Wars fans <laughs> that Star Wars fans are such a small piece Mm. of Star Wars fans, yeah. really. <laughs> like, everyone in the world is sort of a Star Wars yeah, fan. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, like, I, I, you, you've done this. I mean, yeah. you go around the world, and there are Star Wars fans. There are people you can talk to anywhere. Um, I had a really great experience. I went to France, and the 501st was there, mm -hmm. and they showed me around town, and they, they, we had all kinds of stories about how... Uh, they told me all kinds of stories about how Star Wars was different culturally there than it was here, and it was it was a common language we could speak because mm. uh, their English was much better than my French, but mm. Star Wars we all spoke that at the same level, and um, so I think I think that it was you've got to think about it in terms of perspective. Like how many of you how many of you read Star Wars novels? How many of you read Star Wars comic books? <laughs> How many of you have watched the cartoons? But how many of you have watched the movies? 
<laughs> you see what I mean? See, see how the scale of the movies is so much larger than what the, the more hardcore uh, parts of fandom are? For anyone listening to the audio, by the way, we should point out that only a few hands up went up until we talked about it. full house yeah. at the end. With yeah. Her, yeah. Um, but uh, it's the people that have that most visceral, divided reaction about The Last Jedi are a small sliver of those who'd have their hands up for the books and the comics and the cartoons. Mm-hmm. So it's just not, it's not even, it's almost not worth talking about yeah. at this <laughs> point. For the book, I, I wrote a chapter called The Five Stages of Prequel Grief. <laughs> and uh, I th- think that we're looking at the same thing again. I mean, this is actually the chapter that I first spoke to Brian for because he was the acceptance section. We're talking to Brian. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> denial, these movies don't exist. They never happen. They're not canon. You know, anger, I'm, uh, you destroyed my childhood. You know, depression, bargaining. Well, we could make them good if we just... We take Qui-Gon out of the first film and we put Obi-Wan <laughs> there and we, like, he doesn't stay on the ship. And, you know, a lot of bargaining uh, about episode one especially. Uh, and then finally you get your way to acceptance, and, and Brian's sort of the, the ultimate example of that. I think we're going to go through the same thing again. I think it's going to take a while. I think it's probably going to take Rise of Skywalker coming out for the debate about The Last Jedi to yeah. cease, and we'll finally see it in the proper context yeah. of nine stories, not just one story by itself. You know, We'll see what it's set up. We'll start to debate about could it have been done better should Luke really have thrown away the lightsaber at the beginning of the film? What other reaction could he have? Um, yeah. No, I think, I th- again, it, it comes down to people not actually paying attention to the movies that carefully. Yeah. All of their problems with The Last Jedi actually came from decisions made in The Force Awakens. Huh. If, Luke, right. if Luke was so eager to train Rey, why didn't he why tear did, across the galaxy yeah. to save Han Solo, which is the entire plot of The yeah. Empire Strikes Back? He had to have cut himself off from the Force. There was literally no other way yeah. to resolve how the Force Awakens had left it. Yeah. You know, that paragraph of the exquisite corpse game had been folded over, and that was the last line. You know, Luke is alone on a planet where he's hidden himself very deliberately. So why? I, I think, uh, just, just hearing what you guys are talking about, it occurs to me that time is both the cause of and solution to our problems when it comes to Star Wars. I think, I, think, I think when it comes to the prequel films, enough time had passed that you had a whole generation of fans who had built up what those Clone Wars looked like. They had mm. figured out in their head what Darth Vader's origin was, and then it couldn't help to measure up. And then we have something very similar with the, with the current trilogy, where not only did we have, like, you know, people had their ideas, but you had comic books and novels and everything else. And then what happens? You know, uh, Han Solo, I, I, and I, you know, what's funny is I remember watching The Force Awakens, and I've been reviewing films for 20 plus years at this point, and I've never had an experience like this. I watch Harrison Ford step out on that catwalk, and my heart was pounding through my chest because I knew what was about to happen, yeah. and my heart was saying, I don't want to see this. I remember that. Uh, and so, I, and I dig the, the sequel films, but a lot of people are like, well, no, I want Han Solo to be immortal. I want Luke yeah. Scott. And for 30 years, those characters were immortal. So my, my story about that, I, I just, I'd literally just come from interviewing Harrison Ford on the red carpet wow. in, into the theater for the, the premiere of The Force Awakens. And we sort of knew, like we kind of got advance spoilers that uh, Han Solo was going to die. And I wanted to ask him about that 
without really asking about that. So I was like, if, if your time on the Star Wars movies ever comes to an end, <laughs> uh, how will you feel about that? And this classic Harrison Ford, he just looked at me and just said, fondly. <laughs> I was like, okay. Thank you, sir. Interview over. That's all I need. That's so Harrison. <laughs> it's so Harrison. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's not... I mean, he, he wanted Han Solo to die in Return of the Jedi. Right. I, I feel like that's a fairly well-known fact. <laughs> he said he's got no mama, he's got no papa, let's kill him and bring some weight to this thing. Well, and, and, and just, just to echo that, I, th- I think uh, the generation of children that grew up with the prequels, they view them holistically. They view the saga holistically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know what's funny is I've spoken to people who watched Star Wars... The, the original film in the theaters, and so they they're old enough to have been disappointed by Return of the Jedi. Yeah, mm. that's not the way I saw. You know, so I'm like, oh, okay, this is just a thing. This is just what. But this you is. go back further, and they're they're disappointed by Empire Strikes Back. You yeah. look at critical reaction to Empire Strikes Back without the the conclusion to it, and they were like, it's just a jumbled mess. We have no idea what the hell we just saw. It was so unusual at the time to make you wait three years to resolve a story, to to end it on a note where. The bad guy, you know, the bad guys had won, effectively. And and sequels at the time were really, yeah. how can we repackage the same sort yeah. of vibe from the first movie, and give it to you in a slightly different way, so you want to pay to see it again? You know, it's it it was, you know, they they wanted Jaws two, yep, uh, not <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back. And a lot of early reviews talked about that arrogance of like, oh, we're, we're going to stick around for a third film to see how this results. How dare you? Which is what I think The Last Jedi is going through right now. I honestly believe 20 years from now uh, it will be as unanimous uh, as everybody looks back at at Empire Strikes Back that The Last Jedi is is one of the best Star Wars films ever made. Yeah, I'll, I'll co-sign that very gladly. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I think the, to some extent Star Wars is a victim of its own success because mm. it paved the road for so much of just what we take for granted in the industry that... Uh, when you look back, it it you know obviously the 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 technological innovations and everything else were were impressive, but the storytelling innovations are less talked about mm. as really being a new thing to the industry. And you know the, the the competition for Star Wars is not like Star Trek or any other franchise or Harry Potter or anything. The competition for Star Wars movies is the Star Wars movies you made in your head right. when you were eight years old. Right, and uh, to a certain extent, nothing's ever going to live up to that. that. That was one of the interesting things. I talked to Matthew Wood, who was the sound designer, mm-hmm. uh, who's been working on the films forever. He's the voice of General Grievous, and he was saying that when mm-hmm. they were remastering for the Blu-ray, the uh, original trilogy, he said that they had to go back when he was working with Ben Burt. They weren't trying to recreate the exact sound that you would have had in the movie theater in 1977 because it would have sounded like garbage. Mm. What they wanted to do is try to recreate the sound you thought you heard in your head. Mm-hmm. And that's what they went back to try to do. And that's, and that's, I think, a really interesting way to look at it is we've got these different iterations that we've talked about um, or that, that we have of the movies. And part of it is chasing the idea of what we had in our head rather than what was actually there. And people, people, people don't realize, I think, sometimes that, that Star Wars changed cinema, too. Mm. Like, Star Wars, you could go and see it in mono, right? 
can you imagine going to see a movie in a movie theater in mono now? It was George Lucas with Return of the Jedi that said you really need to upgrade to Dolby mm. in order for us to have this this sound experience. And and I think most of the early theaters that released it in seventy seven and May on May twenty fifth were were Dolby theaters. Yeah, so was, and and then so with Phantom Menace, he did the same thing. He said if you want to if you want first crack at Phantom Menace, you have to upgrade your theater to five one channel sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Attack of the Clones, he said if you want first crack at it, you're going to have to convert to digital digital cinema. And people were shocked. Like, why would we? Why would we do this? And you know, it was George Lucas stamping his foot and saying, "No, you don't understand that this is the way we're going to be seeing movies." Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're hard pressed to find a theater that's playing anything in 35. And it's a preservation experience too, right? Like, how many of you raced to go see a movie opening weekend because by week two the prints were dirty, there were scratches everywhere, <laughs> the sound was popping. Mm-hmm. Um, Good times. We yeah, it, it's Star Wars. Star Wars has created that that necessity because of what we imagined the experience was. Uh, they just had to go through and make sure that we could experience that with everything going forward. Yeah, yeah, created a lot and a lot of it by accident. Yeah, right. You know the the, the fact that uh, Lucas cuts so fast, and like we we thought at the time, Episode Four. Or, Star Wars as it was then, uh, was <laughs> like, you know, we, we thought it was an incredibly fast movie. Now it seems incredibly slow, but it sort of, it spurred culture on, uh, cuts and movies became faster and faster. Cuts and TV became faster and faster. Star Wars was a big part of that. He wasn't cutting fast because he was like, you know, ADD or anything. He, he was embarrassed by his special effects <laughs> because he thought Stanley Kubrick did it so much better. If I cut really fast, nobody will notice that my special effects are not up to snuff, right? So that was the thinking that goes on his head. Not what we saw on the screen at all. It's you know in in your book you talk about uh, his his uh, the, the car accident that he had, and, and you mention in the book like what would cinema look like if God forbid you know that accident had claimed his life? And I I was pondering that question this afternoon and. I don't know. You know, it, it's like a, some weird. I think I think you say it's a it's a wonderful life, right? You yeah, say. yeah. It, <laughs> it is fascinating to consider, right? Because okay, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out that December. That probably would have been a bigger deal than it was. Uh, that probably may, would have made bigger waves than it had, and you know, maybe uh, <clears throat> you know, maybe more directors would have been encouraged to do more because all of Lucas's cohorts were, were sort of nibbling around the idea of doing a science fiction movie, right? How do you do it right? How do you do it on a small budget? Because nothing has ever proved that science fiction makes money. Um, so someone would have come up with something sooner or later. I just don't think it would have been on this scale. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, you talk about uh, John Carter being one of mm. the progenitors. And uh, the unfortunate you know, irony is that the film John Carter which which is a clear inspiration for not just Star Wars but so much sci-fi comes out and people are like oh this is just derivative right <laughs> it's interesting well, John Car- John Carter to to get it right John Carter inspired Buck Rogers who inspired Flash Gordon who inspired Star Wars there you go there's the lineage, <laughs> <That's> the lineage. <laughs> I was I was talking to somebody too about how how Star Wars has made Star Wars was so revolutionary in bringing that hero's journey to the front of the storytelling and now it's almost invisible. Right now, we expect that if we don't get that, hmm, right. then we're we're put off by it. 
Where's my monomyth? That's what people are Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, um, Tron Legacy, the Tron sequel, it, it, it hit all the beats perfectly. But I think maybe the problem is, is they're treating what George Lucas, what ingredients George Lucas took out of the monomyth as a checklist instead of inspiration. Mm, mm. And uh, it, it was so invisible to people. People were just like, I don't, what's the story? I don't even get it. That's, well, well I, I mean, act, that actually piggybacks into my next question, which was, uh, I mean, Star Wars is Star Wars. Uh, what is the next Star Wars? More Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to say that there's something else on the horizon in movies, right? Maybe it's a Netflix show. Maybe it's, you know, I think The Mandalorian has proved the uh, the capability of Star Wars on on TV. We've never had a, a Star Wars live action TV show before, which was a, a nut. George Lucas was trying to crack desperately before he sold the company, and that was right. uh, what they sort of, you know, a lot of the technology and ideas that he had for how to approach Star Wars on the small screen and streaming. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. You, you know, you go back to those old those old interviews with him from the '80s, and he's just like, you know, we're going to beam movies to each other. You know, like like he he described streaming in the '80s as though yeah. he was. I don't know. George Lucas is the person we should be asking what that next thing is. (laughs) Yeah, there are still 50 unproduced scripts of Star Wars Underworld somewhere in the Lucasfilm archives. For for the the television series that... Yeah. 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 So George Lucas, uh, he was in development on a TV show called Star Wars Underworld. It was supposed to be the Godfather in space Mm. is how it was described. They brought in uh, Ronald Moore from Battlestar Galactica and, and... uh, he over he oversaw a team and they wrote I think it was eighty scripts actually but that's they're still pulling pieces out of it in the canon that's where we learned uh, Senator Palpatine's first name uh, Sheev Sheev came out of those scripts so they're still mining that material interesting that's where um thirteen thirteen that canceled yeah. LucasArts game came from it, it had spun out of the the pages of those scripts so. Um, and I, the wonderful thing about Lucasfilm, everything gets recycled eventually. No, it's true. Yeah, it's true. It's amazing how many unused Ralph McQuarrie drawings find their way into the movies from, uh, Vader's castle to the, the gates of Jakku Mm. or or Nima outpost rather. So we didn't quite answer your question, but, uh, no, I I, I mean, I think, I think you, you speak to the outsize, uh, uh, place that star Wars has on, on the pop culture scene. I mean, even as, the Skywalker saga is wrapping up, and this will, if, if, folks. If you have questions, please get them ready. This uh, this will be my last question. But um, we all, we know Star Wars is not ending. So, uh, what do you think uh, is next for the cinematic uh, leg of of this franchise? Well, it's Ryan Johnson's trilogy, right? I hope so. One. Yeah, yeah. We hope the the Game of Thrones dr- guys series. It was never described as a trilogy. Uh, is no more. Um, right. So that's off the table. Although they, they were invited to come back any time, uh, so, in Kathy Kennedy's words. So we don't know. So we've got, I mean, got I think, TV. and Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige yes. is producing a Star Wars film and or a series of films. Who knows what, what that's going to be like. I would be surprised if we don't have an announcement and a date for a a new Star Wars movie and what the next steps cinematically are going to be uh, any later than Star Wars Celebration next year in August, mm. which is when they tend to make some of those big announcements or reveal the schedules. I think we'll probably know more by then. But I think if you notice the marketing 
patterns of Lucasfilm. They really don't like marketing the previous or the the next movie until the previous movie is over. Yep. You know, you notice uh, the trailer for the the Last Jedi first dropped, or uh, Rogue One. The the first trailer for Rogue One dropped the day after The Force Awakens came out on Blu-ray. Interesting. Uh, And I think that was the problem with Solo, right? Is they were still trying to honor that that window where they didn't want to do anything to The Last Jedi while it was still in theaters in its theatrical window. And they didn't market Solo because they were trying to pay that respect to the saga film. But, uh, yeah, until until Rise of Skywalker comes out and probably ends up on DVD or Blu-ray or streaming or Disney Plus, at the very minimum, I don't think we're going to hear what the next steps cinematically are because if you drop a news story about what's coming up cinematically right now a week before the movie comes out, that's what the conversation becomes about. Right. Yep, forget right. about it. Yeah, we've got The Mandalorian. We've got the Kenobi TV show is coming up. Cassian and K2. Cassian, Andor, and K2. We've still got two months of Star Wars Resistance. Which is the animated series. Which is the, the animated series currently going on and ending ending eight episodes from now. Whole other season of Clone Wars. Yeah. Well, so, 12 episodes. So my, my contention has been, and I'd love to get your thoughts, that even as they are saying this is the close of the Skywalker saga, they're being very deliberate about not saying it's the close of the Star Wars saga. Not at all. And I think, I, I feel like Disney would not sacrifice the financial value of the blast of that John Williams music and seeing that logo and that crawl. It means too much to ever close that box completely. But it's also inherent in Star Wars that it has to go fallow every right. so often, right? It, it, after, like after Return of the Jedi, George deliberately left it alone for years and he let the, uh, desire build back up. Was it that, or was it him going? I don't know how I'm going to make the uh, the movie in my head because of the current technology. <laughs> well, Howard Rothman apparently pr- tried to go to him with the the idea of like, we, can we do more books yet? And he was like, nope. Hmm. Let's let's just wait. Give it a few years. So so more is coming. That much we know. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, did did we have any uh, questions? One of the praises of Star Wars has always been the diversity on the screen. Mm-hmm. Everyone's, you know, characters and humans and robots and all that. One of the criticisms often is the role of women in heroic roles and leadership roles. Do you think that has evolved over time? Has our perception of that changed? And where do you think we are now? It's certainly evolved. Um, I mean, I don't think, by the way, we should denigrate the, the effect that Leia had in 77. She was a very powerful, strong, forthright, intelligent heroine, um, the like of which we'd not seen on the screen very often, in a, if at all, until that point. But yeah, it was still clearly a boys' film. Uh, you know, there was no nothing like gender parity uh, in Star Wars for a long time. Still really isn't. But um, but yeah, she's she sort of had to carry the can for a while. Uh, Padme was kind of hampered in the prequel trilogy by a lot of factors... Uh, having to pretend to be a handmaiden was one of them, you know, having the, the monotone speech pattern, all of that. Um, but I think they, they really made an effort with the sequel trilogy to make it a little bit more even. You have uh, characters like Phasma, who is the first character who is uh, a woman and could have been either gender, right? It mm. doesn't matter yeah. what's inside the armor. Uh, just, you know, she's Phasma. It's interesting. I think there's still a long way to go as far as diversity goes. If you look and and, uh, somebody had broken out what 
uh, which of the Star Wars movies has the most speaking lines for females, and I think it's still Attack of the Clones. It's, mm. it's Attack of the Clones or, or Revenge of the Sith, one of the two yeah. of them. I think it's Attack of the Clones. And it's unfortunate that Rogue One had the potential to be higher up, and it, indeed before it was edited down probably did, but they took out a lot of Jyn Erso's speaking lines in the long, long process of editing that film. I think that was problematic, and I hope that they've looked at that. It's such a great movie, though. It's still a great film, but you can almost see the gaps at the beginning where her lines were supposed to be. Sure. Um, But I think think there's a lot of criticism, too. Like, with with Star Wars, it seems as though you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. (laughs) I think Admiral Holdo was a great character, and I think she gets some of the most... Uh, vitriolic responses mm. to her character, and I think that she was incredibly intelligent. And I think that Poe, I one of my favorite things I've ever been to was at San Diego Comic Con last year in 2018. Uh, a group of lawyers actually did a, a mock court martial for Poe Dameron <laughs> for his for his uh, nice. for his part in the mutiny in the Last Jedi, and he should have just shut up and followed orders because Admiral Holdo knew what she was doing. And I really, really loved that character, but it's a, it's interesting to see the pushback when you have characters that are uh, female who do the exact so- same sorts of things as the men have done traditionally. And they get the pushback for merely the fact that they're female. Ray is someone who gets a lot of that too. And Ray doesn't do anything more impressive than an eight year old Anakin Skywalker does in Phantom Menace, but, and no one questions it. Mm-hmm. Luke, has, I mean, Luke is literally a farmer. They pulled off of a dirt farm, and they put him in an X-Wing, and he blows up a Death Star, and no one says boo about it. But you put Ray, you give Ray a lightsaber after a, hard, a hard-knocked life mm-hmm. in, in, on Jakku, fending for herself, fighting with, you know, uh, a staff all over the place and fending for herself. And she beats an emotionally compromised and wounded by a Wookiee bowcaster, Kylo Ren. And suddenly that's too much. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, goodness. I mean, and Ray has more reason to be a good pilot, right? Yeah. Than, than Luke did, you know, she was on her own. She had to grow up fast and was, he's a whiny teenager. <laughs> On a dirt farm. Yeah. But it's interesting. So the, the, there was, I, I feel like there's a mirror in the, the way that the Mandalorian was treated. The first three episodes of the Mandalorian did not have any female characters in it or very few. Beside the armorer. Right. Beside the armorer. We never actually see. Um, but then all of a sudden we get the strong female characters coming in in episode four. The, the level of online complaint went up. Oh, did they really? Oh, yeah. yes. Were these things connected? I don't know. I wonder. Decide. Somebody needs to do a study about Russian bots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you talk about creativity and future episodes and w- whatever. How much is George Lucas involved? They call him now and again. Yeah, he was on set for The Mandalorian. This is, it's sort of, I mean, Kathleen Kennedy and, and her production team, Kathleen Kennedy was, uh, I mean, she's a legendary producer in her own right. Uh, she produced the Indiana Jones movies, E.T., uh, Jurassic Park. Uh, she's, she's a creative powerhouse as a producer on her own. And George Lucas, before he sold to Disney, handpicked her to take over the company as he left. And she's been the one sort of shepherding these decisions. Lucasfilm has put together a story group full of a whole bunch of people that help make sure that it it uh, sticks to the spirit of what Star Wars is. I think Dave Filoni, who George Lucas uh, handpicked 
to run the Clone Wars TV series that George Lucas was intimately in charge of, uh, trained him for almost 10 years. And Dave Filoni is one of those, one of those people that gets looked to as, is this something George would do? Is it not something George would do? Hmm. And it's interesting where, you know, sometimes what George would do is absolutely absurd, but everybody goes along with it when they find a reason. I mean, uh, when they brought Darth Maul back after he'd been cut in half, apparently everyone there, Dave Filoni and the crew of the Clone Wars, were like, you can't, you can't bring Darth Maul back. And George Lucas just sort of said, ha, I'll show you. <laughs> and so I think, that, I think that they're taking all those lessons that George taught them uh, before he left, and they're, say, they're applying his philosophy to all of that. It, it is a weird power dynamic in that there's, you know, we go from one overarching creator who knows everything, who makes the ultimate decisions on anything, uh, anything filmed we should say he was always he described it a situation of the father the son the holy ghost at lucasfilm before the sale right the uh-huh. father was him he takes care of the film entertainment uh the son was like merchandising and licensing uh and the, and the holy ghost was the, was the fans and they could do whatever they want right but he's just focused on the film he never controlled what was in the novels he didn't care i don't think he even knew that uh chewbacca was going to die in the novels which is not canon anymore. They erase that. It's okay. A moon did not fall on Chewbacca. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so he wasn't involved in that side. So it's kind of like we've gone to the level of how the novels and the comic books used to be done. Eh, they're, a lot like more, a they're a lot more carefully yeah. groomed and managed then. I mean, the, the, the comics and the novels were the Wild West, right? right. Like, this no one before the sale. Yeah. In the, there was no story group back then. Yeah. That's well, cool. in the, in the 90s, when the expanded universe, which is what it became to be known as, uh, grew, no one had really done licensing like that before. I mean, Star Trek had, they had novels, but they weren't ever intended to be connected to the universe. Mm. And so they just kind of took that pattern where it's like, we'll do all this stuff and, We'll never make more movies, so just let them do whatever they want with the legacy characters. Right, and that sort of bit them. It's later. it's kind of scattershot. If, in case you don't know, all of, all of in 2014, a big decision was made that all of the novels and comic books written up until that point were now no longer in Star Wars canon at all. Yeah, they were legends, and then after that, everything is f- more fully in canon. Yeah. than comics and books used to be before that. So. Yeah. Going for it's much more coordinated. There is a group. There's a the, the whole story group, as you mentioned. But yeah, it's, but that, I mean that little... that was like the sci-fi equivalent of like the Reformation. I mean, it was. People, <laughs> I mean, wars have started for oh, less. Oh my goodness! <laughs> people uh, went nuts that day. It was crazy. But but uh, talking about George Lucas's impact on the current productions, I, I made a joke with somebody. I was like, it's it feels like every production. Uh, since the sale, they have to have the requisite. Oh, here's George Lucas talking to the filmmakers' picture, just to be like, oh, he's okay yeah. with it. And I, yeah. I, I think he's okay with, like, oh, I don't know, I don't want to worry about this. <laughs> well, he was on, like I say, he was on set for the Mandalorian. He was on set for Solo. You know, they always bring him on. He, he always sort of points out one or two things, like he was like, this is how Lando uses his capes on when he's on the Millennium Falcon, right? <laughs> throw him over the shoulder like that with the mandalorian he clearly they wanted to make it very clear that he knew about baby yoda uh so cool um uh before so that's sort of like he he's given his blessing to it but he the one that he really liked was rogue one uh like that was the only one i think where he was super enthusiastic he called gareth edwards the director 
and just enthused about it because it was backing into a new hope, right? So well, I think I think part of it was the technology. The technology they they swung for the fences on the technology. I think Rogue One more than any of the other Star Wars movies that have come since actually took the spirit of George Lucas not just in story but also in technological advancement Mm. as they brought. Peter Cushing back to life, right. yeah. which was a very, very bold choice. Um, and that could well have been a failure. No one talks about that. There was a lot of consternation about that when the movie came out. Mm. But, I mean, as you have conversations with Rogue One, that Peter Cushing was digital in that movie really never comes up anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, something you guys have mentioned three times are, like, internet reactions. And you've also kind of touched on like you've mentioned Harry Potter once, mm-hmm. but internet trolls three times. Mm-hmm. My cousin once described 4chan as the Moss Eisley of the internet. Um, <laughs> I'd rather go to Moss Eisley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you you talk about the overarch. Like this is very much a feature of our culture. How do you, how can you directly speak to that? Do you think Star Wars will ever address it? Or can you more directly speak on like the internet subcultures that are going on? How how you think they affect things? I should preface it by saying that uh, you, you sort of get the impression, reading it from a distance, that Star Wars fandom is a trash fire. Uh, it's completely toxic, and you should go nowhere near it. 99% of the Twitter interactions I have with Star Wars fans are amazingly positive, very friendly. It brings people together from all over the country, and, they, uh, and it brings them together faster than it used to in the old days, right? And certainly in, in the dark times between Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace, it was very hard to be a Star Wars fan, right? And you had to join a club or sign up for some, you know, f- get fan fiction by mail, which is a thing that used to happen. Um, now you just go on Twitter, and like within 20 seconds, you're connected to hundreds, if not thousands, of you know, positive Star Wars fans who, who feel the same way that you do. So, so yeah, Star Wars fandom gets a bad rap. There is a negative element. It does tend to be the people with fewer Twitter followers, I've noticed. Like, huh. you've got less than 100 <laughs> Twitter followers, and maybe you haven't put your profile photo up, and uh, maybe you've got a long string of numbers after your name. <laughs> I'm not saying they're all bots, but I'm saying they act like them. Um, I, I think the Internet backlash has been really interesting uh being probably more in the middle of it than i'd ever like to be um there are it's really interesting the short version is is you can actually trace what is now colloquially like what they call themselves the fandom menace you can trace it back to um steve bannon and gamergate and his exploitation of them trying to get trump elected um, and that evolved. That was something Steve Bannon was like, these guys will believe anything, right? And so they they were a group that he exploited as, as, as Gamergate, and they were these group of people who got enraged over a... I mean, that was a long story, but it sort of morphed into Comicsgate. It was very hyper-conservative um, fans of things that wanted to... It, it's sort of like a grift, right? It's like, we want to be upset very loudly about things and come support our Kickstarter. Mm. And they realized that Star Wars was getting them the same sorts of hits and in in some cases more. So a lot of it is like manufactured rage. If you go onto YouTube and look at a lot of these people dissecting things, I think it started on the internet dissecting Star Wars with Red Letter Media, which are very, very, to a certain audience, funny, but 
disingenuous reviews of the films um, that are not for critique, but for comedy and to try to outsmart movies. So YouTube film criticism seems more like trying to outwit a film. Hmm. How many plot holes did it have? How many this did it have? And there's a, a group of people who respond to that and then any underlying political messages that these that these people have. And so the Phantom Menace sort of grew out of that that started with Steve Bannon, honestly. Um, there's definitely that ancestral connection. I think there's also, you mentioned YouTube. I think it's important to recognize, and I've written about this a lot, so I don't just write about Star Wars. Uh, YouTube is an has become an extremely toxic culture. Yeah. Uh, because it rewards you for having a, an extreme viewpoint. Uh, yeah. Necessarily say extremist, but an extreme viewpoint gets people watching. Maybe they're hate watching, but they're still watching. Um, and so you see a lot more videos that are like, you know, why the Mandalorian doesn't work, why Stranger Things season three doesn't work. That, that's you a know, title why, that's going to get people to click exactly. on it. Yeah. Whether you love it or you hate it, you'll click on that title. So people are incentivized to make that sort of video. They get money for making that sort of video. And so they just increase that outrage. Exactly. And it, it becomes an echo chamber. Well, and and just to add to that, I think I think the role of uh, the media in, in terms of click-based culture can't be undervalued here, which is that, you know, I, I remember a couple of years ago when the first image of John Boyega is revealed and, oh, he's a stormtrooper. You know, suddenly you've got uh, uh, websites. Oh, people are people are upset that there's a black stormtrooper. And it's like, well, no, it's person is upset. And who right. cares what random guy with no Twitter AVI has, you know, but now it's become a narrative. And I think that's a big part of this whole thing. Too. I think I think one thing that, that's happened in our culture as far as criticism goes is that because of a, we live in a click based culture where media outlets need clicks to survive, the hyperbolic polls are what get those clicks. You can't go write a review of a movie and say, meh, it was fine. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's not yeah. going, that's not going to drive traffic to your website, which in turn isn't going to put eyeballs on your ads, which in turn isn't going to pay your salary. Right? Like the, meh, it's fine. YouTube reviews don't get all of those views. Yeah. It's everything has to be the worst thing ever or the best thing ever. And the people who think something's the worst thing ever and the best thing ever are going to go to war. And that's just the way um, online uh, click-based journalism seems to work these mm. days. Mm. There is. I mean, as, as a member of the media, I'll just stand up for the media and say that there are a lot of websites that, you know, we, we know not to do clickbait. Yeah. Right? Because you don't get a substantial traffic boost in the long term from that. So just as a self-interested point... Uh, clickbait doesn't work, especially film-based clickbait. Sites that do it get called out really quick. But it does work with YouTube's al algorithm. Yes. And that's why, you know, it would be nice for YouTube to address their algorithm, not just because it would make film criticism a better place, but because maybe there would be less Nazis. From your words to YouTube's ears. <laughs> Let's say you met someone who had never seen Star Wars before. Hmm. In what order do you suggest... They watch the Skywalker films. I think you need to have a conversation with them. <laughs> no, seriously. If, if I, I should say, if I meet someone who hasn't seen Star Wars before, I say, stay there. Stay, pr preserve cultural diversity. Too many people have seen these films. You need to so just. I've been able to, I've, I've been able to show people 
Star Wars for the first time a few different times. Um, most recently with my, my four-year-old daughter. She decided she saw a trailer for Rise of Skywalker. She wanted to see the movies, and we're like, well, if you want to go see that one, you're going to have here's, – here's some homework, kid. Um, <laughs> and I've done it. I've done it release order. I've done it chronologically. But honestly, uh, part of the reason I've done some release order and, and chronologically from one to eight is because it was the people that, I, that hadn't seen it before. I had to know their personality to know what they were more in tune with, what they would be more interested in. Phantom Menace works a lot better for a more modern audience that doesn't have that, that connection to it. Um, a New Hope is a slower-paced film compared to the rest of the Star Wars movies. Um, with my four-year-old, uh, we did four and five. And when we got to the end of Empire Strikes Back, um, we had a discussion, and she was really convinced that Darth Vader was lying. And she could not comprehend that Luke Skywalker would have a father that could possibly be uh, Darth Vader. And so as we had that discussion, we decided we would go back to one and we would have this discussion with her and say, like, well, well, let's watch Phantom Menace. Do you think Anakin Skywalker is Darth Vader? And after that movie, it was like, no, absolutely not. There's no way. It's really sad he had to leave his mom, which <laughs> there's nothing more heartbreaking than watching Phantom Menace with a four-year-old, watching an eight-year-old have to leave his mother forever, and then have your four-year-old crawl into your lap and say, I'm never going to leave you, Dad. Aww. 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 <laughs> you... I'm going to uh, jump in here. <laughs> okay. Uh, Chris, Chris Taylor, uh, thank you so much for your, your book. And uh, if, um, if, you, if you're interested, uh, Chris will be signing the book outside. Recommend you pick it up. Uh, and uh, we had a great a great cast here. Brian, thank you for coming. And also, Zaki, the three of you put together a great conversation for us tonight. Thanks it so is much a for podcast. Us. Thank so you. Thank you all for coming, you. and hope to see you soon. <laughs>